Hello everyone, Al from Point of Insanity Game Studio, and welcome back to another episode of Geekery in General. Now first I do have to apologize that uh, this episode is going to be more or less off the cuff. Didn't have a chance to do too much uh, research for it. Uh, also just had kind of a busy week and didn't get a chance to really sit down and do some of the uh, research I wanted. Um, and I, it's kind of last minute. I'm recording this at 11 o'clock Friday night and hopefully I'll be able to uh, post it tomorrow. I guess we'll find out tomorrow. So, like I said, this is going to be not as organized as some of my previous episodes, but I hope you'll enjoy it, or at least find it interesting. And the subject of today's episode are some alternate forms of magic. Now, if you've played Dungeons & Dragons or just about any fantasy role-playing game, a lot of times you're going to see magic with a lot of spectacular spells. You know, Fireball, Lightning Bolt, Ice Storm, Meteor Swarm, Prismatic Spray. All of these spells are going to produce, well, like I said, very spectacular visible effects. But... If we look at magic from a historical, anthropological, and religious mindset, we find that a lot of the magic that we see in mythology and folklore, usually you don't have people doing things like that. Most of the time, a lot of magic effects we see are going to be more subtle. Um, a good example would be if you have read any of the second edition historical reference books where they talk about uh, different time periods such as, well, there's one based on the ancient Celts, there's one based on classical Greece, there's one based on uh, Vikings, and and so on. And they do give some guidelines in there for if you are going to run a historical campaign and you are going to allow magic users, you're probably going to want to, you know, limit the spells. So you're you're not going to see these big spectacular spells. You're going to see more subtle spells like sleep or charm person, illusions suggestion, things of that nature. Now, another one of the things that made me think about this topic is, for some reason, I was uh, thinking about uh, an anthropology class I took back in college, and I remember there was a brief section where our professor did talk a little bit about folk magic and, you know, even folk religion. Now, you might wonder, well, what is this folk magic or folk religion? Best way to describe folk religion, it is when a religion comes to an area that it's not natural to or it's not native to, and the locals there 
if they adopt this religion, they incorporate some of their native traditional beliefs into this new religion. Perhaps the best example I can think of would be voodoo, and that's because it incorporated some uh, beliefs from Roman Catholicism with some of the indigenous African beliefs. So that's a good example of what we mean by a folk religion. So it's a little different from, actually it can be quite different from the mainstream practice of that faith. Well, what about folk magic? What is that? Well, folk magic is usually described as these traditional magical or you know pseudo magical uh, rituals and beliefs that were passed down from generation to generation so maybe in some area they believed that okay if you were feeling sick well say this incantation or you know drink a mixture of these berries and herbs and that'll make you feel better so uh, all this these folk magic rituals i you could also see them as a tradition not traditional i'm sorry um alternative religion i i guess that's another way you could see it as well and these ideas that i'm going to talk about today they might actually be helpful if you're doing a modern type campaign. So maybe you are setting your campaign in the current day and it doesn't your system that you're using doesn't really have a system of magic to it. So these are some ideas that I think would actually could work very well in a modern setting. And one of the reasons I think that these systems of magic I'm going to suggest might work is because of the power of suggestion. Occasionally, you might hear about or read about a study for a medicine, and sometimes when they are testing a new type of medication, what the researchers will do is they'll have a control group that they're going to give a placebo to. And they might say, okay, well, you're going to take this pill and it's to, I don't know, it's to help you recover from a cold faster or recover from the flu faster. But maybe what the doctors are actually giving that control group is just a normal vitamin pill. So it doesn't have any, you know, real medicine in it. And sometimes these studies have shown that placebos have been almost as effective as the the new medicine they were trying out. So not really going to get too much into the placebo effect, but it does have a little bit of merit behind it where sometimes if you really believe that doing something is going to help you recover from a, you know, a sickness, it might actually help. So going back to that college class I was talking about, I remember there were two types of magic that the professor spent the most time talking about. First is sympathetic magic. And sympathetic magic 
is best thought of as the principle of like encourages like. So if you've got something that you know has a characteristic or has some something that you you want to bring about in yourself some you know whether it's health or wisdom or knowledge that you know maybe if you do something like this it will help you get your you know get what you want now it's possible this could be the earliest form of magic and here's what i mean now we do know that there are cave paintings and probably the most well known i know there's that cave in france but can't don't remember the name of it right now but there were some beautifully preserved cave paintings in there showing people hunting animals some anthropologists believe that this might be a form of sympathetic magic the tribe might have their shaman go in and paint this picture and it was believed that this painting would ensure a successful hunt now not all anthropologists though are convinced of this theory some think that well it was just a record of uh, of a hunt and it it didn't really have any magical purpose to it now another example of sympathetic magic is there's a folk remedy for curing a fever and what that would involve is a priest or you know a shaman or a medicine man might take some ash and put it on the head of someone who's suffering from a fever so the reason this is sympathetic magic is well that ash that represents a fire that has died out and cooled down so by putting ash on the forehead of someone who is suffering from a fever you're trying to get that you know that aspect of this fire that's gone out to transfer from the you know that ash to the person who is suffering the fever. And again, I could see that being a possibility, something that you could work into a game session because again, it does have that that placebo effect. Another type of magic is contagious magic. Now, this is based on the theory that when someone has been in contact with an item some of that person's power or spiritual essence gets uh transferred over to that object here's an example that i can how i could see that working let's say that you want to become a good hunter however you're not doing too good you know maybe you're scaring off the animals because you're not moving stealthily enough or maybe you're just not good at shooting a bow or a gun or a crossbow whatever you use to hunt so what you might do as a form of contagious magic 
is you might see if maybe there's like a friend or a relative who is a good hunter. Let's say your grandpa is, or your grandfather is a really good hunter. So whenever he goes out hunting, maybe he has that lucky hat that he wears. And since he's a good hunter, it seems to work for him. So what you might do is when you're going out hunting, you might ask your grandfather if you can borrow his lucky hat. And the the theory is that some of your grandfather's hunting skill gets infused into that hat. And thus, if you wear that hat while hunting, you too will become a better hunter. Or another possibility, uh, maybe if you know someone who bow hunts, uh, if you ask them for an arrowhead from a successful hunt, and then maybe wear that as a necklace, uh, again, that might uh, be a form of contagious magic because you have something that represents a successful hunt and you're taking it with you and you're hoping that some of that, that energy or that essence that is rubbed off on the object will get rubbed off onto you. Another form of folk magic is correspondence. And this is the belief that an object can cause change in another object just because it looks kind of like the other object or the desired uh, outcome that you wish. Here's an example. Now, if you look at a walnut, a walnut looks kind of like a brain. So one example of correspondence might be, well, okay, if you eat a lot of walnuts, well, since that looks kind of like your brain, it's going to make you smarter. So I guess in game terms, you could say maybe that if you uh, believe in this or you you know, you choose to have a character that believes in this, maybe if he eats some walnuts, that'll give him a, a minor bonus to his next intelligence skill check he has to make. And again, if we're looking at the some of the earlier stuff I was mentioning, the sympathetic magic and the contagious magic, you know, maybe you could translate that as a minor bonus. Like if you are wearing your grandfather's lucky hunting hat, you know, maybe that's going to give you a plus one bonus to your hunting and tracking checks. So another example of correspondence magic might be, well, let's say you've got someone who has a blood disease. Well, there's lots of food that are red, uh, like, for example, cherries or uh, beets or apples. So you might choose to do a type of uh, correspondence magic where if you have that person you know, eat a lot of red foods or drink a lot of red liquids, maybe that'll help them recover from that blood disease faster. Or maybe if they just suffered an injury that caused them to lose a lot of blood, you know, eating and drinking these red foods are going to somehow encourage your body to create more blood cells, more blood. Now, I mentioned uh, a voodoo before and how Again, that was a folk religion that contained some elements of Catholicism and some elements of traditional African beliefs. 
another type of magic that we can see is something called a poppet. And most people, when they think of a, well, they would think more of a voodoo doll first. And the way that Hollywood tends to portray voodoo dolls isn't exactly accurate to what the belief is in them. But we're going to go with what the traditional Hollywood depiction of a voodoo doll is, just because I think that does have some interesting uh, game mechanics you might be able to, or some interesting ways you might use it in your campaign. Now, uh, a voodoo doll, or a poppet, is a symbolic representation of a person. And the belief is that whatever you do to this voodoo doll or this poppet is going to happen to the person it's supposed to represent. Now, depending on who you ask, the common belief is that in order for this magic to work, you must have a, something from the person you want to affect. Usually it's something like some hair or a nail clipping, you know, something that, you know, small and not going to be missed. So let's say you do get a few strands of someone's hair. You put that in the voodoo doll and then, you know, or the, the poppet and you take a pin and you maybe you stab it into the head and that person is going to have a headache. You know, you stab it into their their leg and their leg is going to hurt. And I did have a game master that did do that to us once. Um, Our group was suddenly down to rest for the night. And one of the the people on watch uh, was hit by a sleep spell. And when we all woke up, we found that each of us had a small personal object that was missing from us. And then we were like, okay, uh, you know, you feel a little bit of pain in your you know, your right arm, and maybe this character over here, you know, you feel a little bit of pain in your left eye. And, you know, eventually we found out, okay, they were using voodoo-type magic on us, and we had to, well, we had to find the dolls and take back our personal items so the magic wouldn't work on us anymore. Now, in Hollywood... And in movies, they usually picture the pain-inflicting aspects of voodoo dolls or poppets. But I think you could try to find some healing applications for it. Uh, For example, let's say that you've got someone who's suffering a fever. Well, you might take a little bit of their hair and put it in a poppet, and then maybe put that in a bowl of cold water. So again, that that borders a little bit more on your sympathetic magic where, again, you're putting this representation of the person in cold water and that's supposed to help cool their fever. Or maybe if the person's suffering from hypothermia, you know, putting them in warm water or holding it over a fire, that's going to symbolically warm the person up. Though in order to get this type of magic to work, I think what you would really need to do is make sure that the person who you want to harm or help with that poppet, they have to be aware of what you're doing. 
because again, if we look at folk magic from the perspective of it, of it being, you know, mostly placebos or based on the power of suggestion, well, if I don't know that someone has a voodoo doll of me and they're sticking pins into it, I don't know, so I don't have any reason to think that I should, I'm going to start to feel pain. But if I knew that someone had a voodoo doll of me and they were going to stick pins in it and try to make it, uh, you know, maybe throw it in a fire to make me sick with a fever, then that might cause my body to have the desired reaction that the this other person wants. Because, again, I think that this is going to happen. Well, the final type of alternate magic I'd like to talk about is symbolism or iconology. A good example would be the runes. And most people, when they think of runes, you're probably thinking of Norse runes. Specifically, um, there uh, there's sets of runes that are called futharks, uh, named after the the first six letters of the runic alphabet. Now, Scandinavian runes, uh, each symbol had a letter, but each symbol also had a certain symbolism behind it. And the what they would often do is they would have these rune poems that they would have, and these uh, rune poems would help you memorize what the rune was supposed to represent or uh, what its power might be. Now, uh, a good example, uh, one rune, Tiwaz. And this is a rune that looks kind of like an arrow that's pointing up. And it's associated with the god Tyr, the Norse god of war, justice, and also the one who bound the Fenris wolf. Now, there is one old English rune poem that I've always liked. Tyr is a star. It keeps faith with the athlings. Ever on its course, over the mist of night, it never fails. And this was supposed to represent uh, Tiwaz as not necessarily the god in this case, but as symbolic of being the, the North Star. Uh, because, again, the North Star never seems to move from its location in uh, the sky. Other symbolism attached to that particular rune is uh, it's usually associated with war or, or victory. Now, a uh, second edition Dungeons and Dragons, in their Viking source book, they did introduce a class called uh, the Runecaster. And I do like what they were trying to do with the rune magic here. Uh, what the rune caster would do is he would carve uh, the rune into an object or a slip of wood or maybe paint it on a person. And then that would cause a magical effect to occur. Now, there was no limit to how many times a rune caster could uh, use a rune, but he only knew a, a limited amount. And uh, it's like he began with two or three runes and then he would gain uh, another one after so many levels. Now, the, the problem with rune magic, though, 
is it really wasn't very effective for combat because the runes did take or it took a long time to cast a rune. Uh, what you you know because it involved envisioning it, envisioning the effect you wanted to produce, and then doing the actual carving or engraving. Uh, so it might take ten or fifteen minutes to cast a rune spell. So obviously these are the types of spells that you're going to use if you're expecting a fight to come up and you know you've got some time to prepare. Though as I recall, some of them uh, could actually be carved into like a shield. And you know you carve that rune into a shield and it would give you a bonus to your saving throws as an example. But the problem is that rune only worked for that specific person. So if I carved this rune onto my shield, I'm the only one that would gain benefit from it. If one of my companions used the shield, he wouldn't gain the same benefit. So I do like what they, how they were uh, picturing that, and I thought they had a pretty good idea there. Other ways you can use symbolism is when you create a magical symbol you are hoping that that symbol is going to install uh, some sort of ability in you. Uh, For example, let's say you do know that there's a big battle coming up, and you want to be strong for the battle. So what you might do is have a rune caster, or someone who does this, this magic of symbolism, maybe they're going to give you a temporary tattoo of an animal that's associated with strength, like a bear or an ox, and you know if you, however you want to work it, uh, you know whether you want to do a skill check for the person creating the, uh, you know creating the symbol, or maybe the person who is having the symbol drawn on them, they might have to make a saving throw to see if they believe that this effect is going to occur. And, you know, if it works, maybe the person will get like a plus one or plus two bonus to their strength for a short period of time. And of course, that just has lots of possibilities because, you know, different cultures are going to have different uh, symbols. So while in, you know, one culture, an animal like a boar or a wolf or a bear might have a positive meaning to it. Another culture, they might have negative uh, connotations they attach to it. Well, I think this is going to wrap up the show for now. Hope you enjoyed the show and uh, hopefully you found some interesting ideas in here. So I'd like to thank you for joining us and uh, have a good evening or morning or afternoon whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter at POIGamestudio.com. 